0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network.
1: You're listening to episode 282, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Greetings from Abstractions, a multidisciplinary conference based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today, I'm joined by Dave Aronson, speaker from the talk, Kill All Mutants. Dave is a software engineer with about three and a half decades of professional experience in a wide variety of languages, systems, techniques, and domains. For the past several years, he's been focusing mainly on Ruby, both on and off rails as a consultant. Welcome to the show, Dave.
0: Thanks, Brittany. I'm honored to be here.
1: Wonderful. And thank you so much for being a listener. I really appreciate that. What is your developer origin story?
0: I'd say it goes back to my senior year of high school. Before that, the school had a paper-based timeshare terminal. Uh, Yes, I go back that far. And over the summer, they had replaced it with a row of TRS-80 Model 1s plus a Model 3 to control the printer and, ooh, dual floppy disk drive. Wow. And I discovered this sometime around uh, maybe October or November or so. I don't remember exactly how I learned my first little bit of basic, probably looking at what was on somebody's screen, but I absorbed it pretty quickly and experimented some more on my own. Pretty soon I was actually helping some of the kids who were taking the class, which I was not. But silly me, I did not realize yet I had found my calling, so I continued with my original plan to go to college the next year as an electrical engineering major despite having very little actual background in that. But when it came time to declare a major, which I think was at the end of my sophomore year, I had started playing around with their much bigger and better computers and taught myself a few more languages and so forth. So I switched my major to computer science, got a degree and then a job, and I've been a developer ever since.
1: That's awesome. So can you explain who TopTal is and what your experience has been like working with them?
0: TopTal is a consulting network. You can apply to join them. They put you through some fairly rigorous vetting. And if you're approved, you get access to some uh, assorted channels like Slack Rooms and such where they announce uh, project openings that you can apply for and they send you to the client and get interviewed there, and you might land the job, or of course not. Uh, There's usually several people applying for each project. As for my experience with them, uh, it's been great. I've only worked one project with them, but that's not because of a lack of projects. Uh, I got one fairly soon after joining them, and wound that one down after, I think it was eight months or so, to go take a project with a friend of mine who really needed my help. But I've remained active with them in their community and especially taking advantage of some of their learning opportunities like the Speakers Academy, which you have to go through to get into their speakers network, in which I'm very active now. In fact, I'm one of the speaker mentors and do a lot of the work of maintaining their list of open CFPs.
1: Very cool. Well, speaking of speaker mentor, um, I thought you shared some really great advice about speaking during your talk yesterday. So what is your philosophy on submitting a conference talk?
0: Well, I wouldn't really say I've been speaking at conferences long enough to really have a philosophy per se, but if I were to put together perhaps some tips, would that count? Absolutely. All right. Uh, Submit early, submit often. Tailor it to what the conference seems to want. But you can save yourself a lot of work by deciding on some parameters about what conferences you want to either focus on or avoid. For instance, uh, a polyglot conference, I'm all over that. Ruby conferences, sure. PHP conferences? Eh, Not so much, not because of anything bad about PHP, but I don't know PHP, so anything, any other sessions I would attend on that, if it's something about PHP, it's not useful to me. If it's illustrating general principles with examples in PHP, it's going to be harder for me to understand. So you can filter out conferences by what they focus on, where they are, how long they are, and whatever else you decide you like or dislike.
1: Well, that's great advice. So let's talk about the content of your talk. What is mutation testing?
0: Long story short, it is a software testing technique. Big surprise there. But people might look at the name and think, oh, it's obviously about testing the mutations used in genetic algorithms. But one would be wrong. It's a somewhat ambiguous name because it's not about testing mutations, it's testing by using mutations. And it's sort of a meta technique because it's mainly testing our tests, finding the gaps that let our code get away with unwanted behavior. The fact that it can also help improve the code itself, I consider that a side benefit.
1: Very cool. And so what does it mean for a test to be strict?
0: Well, first, a bit of a caveat. I don't think this is any sort of official terminology in the mutation testing community. It's just what word I decided to use. And it means basically that it's not letting our code get away with unwanted behavior. It's not something about an individual test so much as the set of tests applicable to a particular function or method or your entire test suite. So if you have a test that catches uh, X when you wanted Y, and you have another test that catches Z, well, the fact that those two tests might also allow the other wrong answer is okay because between them, they catch. Well, assuming your function could only give X, Y, or Z, they catch the. Uh, all the wrong answers.
1: So I can see the real benefits of mutation testing. I'm sure it makes your legacy or your new application's code base more resilient. But of course, with any type of testing, there are probably some drawbacks. So what are the drawbacks of mutation testing? Hmm.
0: The big one, I think, is that it's not at all obvious what to do with any report that the mutation testing tool gives you. It will tell you that making such and such a change to the code, still let it pass all the unit tests. But what does that mean? It could mean that your unit tests are not sufficiently strict, that there's some gap that you need to fill, or it could mean that there's some redundancy in your code or unreachable code, or it could well mean that there's a gap in your test suite that, uh, doesn't really need to be filled. Like, suppose you're testing uh, some function that has a debugging message in it that says, like, the value of x is, and then it appends the value of x. A mutation testing tool might well mutate that little constant string, the value of x is, and replace that with, you know, a single character or an empty string or whatever, and you don't really care. (laughs) That's true. Fortunately, most such tools will let you uh, annotate lines to say, don't bother mutating this line, but that still means you have to go through and annotate those lines, which is a pain in the proverbial posterior and clutters up the code.
1: So you just touched upon this a little bit, and this is kind of a controversial question, but do you feel that all of your code should be tested?
0: Well, I think the answer pretty clearly implies no. You don't need to uh, test 100% of every expression in your code, Uh, not even necessarily every line, because there's all kinds of things that are just gonna you know, come and go and not really have any meaning to it. The most complex stuff and the most important stuff to get exactly right, absolutely, those should be tested. Trivia, like getters and setters, eh. well, in Ruby, of course, we just use you know, adder, reader, adder, writer, adder accessor, but yeah. You know i generally addressing more of a polyglot audience. Anyway, um, I usually use a target of about 80% or if we've managed to isolate all the really critical bits into a separate library, that I might require more like 90, 95. Rarely 100, but I'll go in and look at it and see what the lines are that are not covered and if something that's not covered seems critical yeah okay i'll add tests but if it's trivia forget it
1: i use Simplecov for my coverage in my ruby on rails applications and then i also depend on code climate as well because it'll track Mm -hmm. and tell me which things are covered so uh, day by day i run an e-commerce site for ticketing you've got to believe the checkout path is going to be tested Mm -hmm. But maybe not like the uh, individual side notes on like a theater, like a a specific seat number or something like that is going to be tested. But you're going to want that critical path definitely tested. Mm -hmm. So – our community is very bent on when they write tests that they're looking for that beautiful field of green whenever those <laughs> tests all pass. Yes. And so what's kind of different about mutation tests is that you're kind of trying to deliberately fail those tests. So where mm-hmm. did that whole concept come from?
0: Oh, well, let see, I don't have my presentation notes open in front of me, but if I remember rightly, it was in a term paper by Richard Lipton in 1971, that part I remember, titled something like, Fault Diagnosis of Computer Programs. And we'll link this all up in the show notes, of course. Okay, and maybe the uh, video of my talk might be released by then, so we can link that. Of course. And the first more general tool actually I should say the first tool, I don't think there was even a specific tool before this, uh, didn't come around until 1980 as part of Timothy Budd's PhD work at Yale University.
1: And so that concept kind of spun into mutation testing in the way that we understand it today?
0: I think so. I haven't actually read either of those bodies of work, but uh, from what I can tell from the articles I've read, about them, uh, they established the basic concept that became mutation testing. Yes.
1: Okay. So you run your mutation test suite and you end up with surviving mutants. So can you explain to me what a surviving mutant would be?
0: Okay. Well, first let me correct a bit of terminology. You don't really have a mutation testing suite because What you have is a mutation testing tool that looks at your regular ordinary unit test suite. Gotcha. Um, So uh, to explain what a surviving mutant is, I think I need to explain just what the process of mutation testing is, and that is that a mutation testing tool will look at your functions, and at least for those that have tests on them which unfortunately usually relies on some manual annotation. Uh, For each such function, it will look at all the different ways it can be changed, like changing a plus to a minus or times or divider, exponent or whatever, and all kinds of things. And for each such way, it will create a copy of that function with just that one little change made to it, and that's what's called a mutant. And for each mutant, it will run the unit tests from the original function, but using the mutant. When it gets to a unit test that fails because of the difference between the original function and the mutant, this is called killing the mutant. So a mutant that survives is one that still makes all the unit tests pass. I say that has the superpower of mimicry, skilled <laughs> enough to fool our tests. Yeah.
1: So, um, granted, we are, uh, you are all listening to a podcast, so it makes it a little difficult to be able to see Dave's slides and whatnot. But <laughs> um, I would love to be able to basically map out a very simple mutation test that the listeners can understand. So, can you provide a simple example of? what a test could look like and what its mutated uh, version would look
0: like. OK. Uh, suppose you have a function, let's call it power, and it takes func- uh, arguments x and y and returns x to the power of y. The mutation testing tool could make lots and lots of mutants out of even something that simple. Uh, Let's just start with how it could replace that exponentiation with plus, minus, times, divide. Uh, since the order of operands matter, it could swap them and return y to the x instead. Uh, it could also swap them in the function declarations so that it becomes effectively power of y and x. So that that would have just the very same effect since it's such a short function. And then each of those mutants would be subject to the unit tests. Now, suppose we have just one very simple unit test asserting that power of two and two is four, that two to the second power is four. Now, that's a pretty bad test, but that's still going to kill a lot of mutants. For instance, uh, I didn't mention it could change the whole expression there to return all kinds of constants like 1, 0, minus one, infinity, and so forth. Those are going to get very easily killed, but there will be some survivors, such as addition because two plus two is four, multiplication, and exponentiation in the reverse order because they're the same number. And you can then kill these mutants by either changing that test, which is how I would go, or adding another test with numbers that work out a little more uniquely, like saying that 2 to the third power is 8 or 3 to the second power is 9 or whatever. Then all the formerly surviving mutants will return different answers. Like if we had uh, asserting that 2 to the 3rd power is 8, and multiplication is going to get us 6, and addition is going to get us 5, and exponentiation in the reverse order would get us 9, and none of those are 8, so the unit tests will fail.
1: This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is sponsored by Heffler & Co. A good font is one of the best ways to make your project stand apart. At typography.com, you'll find the work of Heffler & Co., creators of stylish and high-performance typefaces. Their fonts are used by organizations like NPR, cultural institutions like the Guggenheim Museum, and by the people we love, like the Office of Barack and Michelle Obama. And now you can use their fonts, too. H&Co's well-curated library and one-stop licensing options make choosing the right fonts simple, so that you can spend less time looking for fonts and more time using them. H&Co has been designing typefaces for over 30 years and knows how to help designers avoid the pitfalls of using a less-than-perfect font. At typography.com, you'll find lots of options, all of them good. Every font family is built to the same high standard and is designed to have everything you need and nothing you don't. You'll find fonts that have well-thought-out families with great language support and even the most obscure characters, plus tons of tips, tricks, and inspiration to help you get the most out of type. Whether you're designing a website, an app, or an entire identity, H&Co makes it easy to choose the perfect typeface from their library of over 1,500 fonts, including classics like Gotham and Knockout and new favorites like Isotope and Operator. The Ruby on Rails own logo uses their Whitney and Archer fonts. You can try the whole Heffler & Co font library right in the browser at typography.com. And now for a limited time as a Ruby on Rails listener, you'll receive 10% off your next purchase from H&Co. Use code RUBY R-U-B-Y, for your discounted checkout. Thank you Heffler & Co. for sponsoring the show. Awesome. Well, you've mentioned several times that mutation testing can be a little bit manual, but we are very lucky in the Ruby community, and people come out with great libraries and gems for us. Are there any specific tools for mutation testing in Ruby that you recommend?
0: Well, I must caveat that I don't have all that much particular experience. The main one I've used is Mutant, and that's uh, been rather helpful, but they are moving the future development to a closed source model. Mm -hmm. I believe it's also paid, though there may be some exceptions. Uh, They are leaving the last open source version out there for you to use, so that's uh, a good thing there. Mutest is, if I remember rightly, actually a fork of a prior version of mutant with some features added, like some of those inline comments to disable mutation of particular lines and some other mutations added and changed and whatnot. But its own homepage says it's not ready for prime time and it's only compatible with if I remember rightly, it was RSpec, and that made it unsuitable for the project I've been on for a while, which is using Minitest. Then there's Heckle, which is very old. If I remember rightly, it hasn't been updated since 2013 or thereabouts. So that would be on a, by today's standards, downright ancient version <laughs> of Ruby. So you might wind up having some problems trying to use it on software written in a more modern version.
1: Okay, well, there's two very interesting points there. The first, it sounds like there is some room for uh, developers to get in there and to really Mm -hmm. work on these mutation testing tools.
0: Absolutely, if somebody wants to uh, fork Mutant again and keep going with it, or just contribute to Mutest or whatever, I don't know how active the project is, I'm sure that would be greatly appreciated by those who want to try mutation testing. Yes.
1: Awesome. And also, mm. you know, developer tools in general mm. are just such a widening market. I mean, it just gets bigger and bigger every year, mm. and the idea that mutation testing as a service could be a thing that we start mm. to add into our uh, swarm of tools that we have is just a really neat concept. So speaking of, mutation testing will take considerable more resources than standard testing from what I understand. So how can you cut that time down?
0: Hmm, I've given some thought to that, and I haven't really come up with much of a good answer, but that doesn't mean all hope is lost. What I do when something takes that long and I don't need to babysit it in progress is, you know, just run it over a lunch break if it's, you know, that fast enough or if need be overnight, over a weekend, whatever. Mutation testing is probably not something you're going to want to do very often because it takes so much effort to figure out what the mutants are trying to say. And so it strikes me as really ideal to do overnight or over a weekend so you can come in with a fresh batch of mutants, even though a lot of them will be the same as the last batch, and then try and pare them down and just get that out of the way and work on your regular coding and bug fixes and whatnot for the rest of the day.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge, Dave. So how can our listeners continue to follow you?
0: Well, on Twitter, I'm Dave Aronson d-a-v-e-a-r-o-n-s-o-n yes i'm from the poor side of the family we couldn't afford the two a's and on linkedin i'm dave aronson but there's also a lot of other dave aronsons there so make sure you find the one that works for codosaurus that's c-o-d-o-s-a-u-r-u-s
1: awesome we will link all of that in the show notes of course So I have to end it on a fun note. Um, Listeners, during the presentation, Dave did several mutant impressions uh, during his talk. (laughs) And so can you please say goodbye to the audience as Smeagle?
0: Goodbye, my preciouses.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's a wrap. We'll be talking to you soon, listeners. Thanks.